time. Genesis chapter 49. And I'd like to read the first four verses to you this evening, and then we'll pray. The Word of God says, And Jacob called unto his sons, and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together, and hear ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. Now, we're going to preach about Reuben, but I want you to read with me verse 1 again. He says, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, Lord, with your word, your people, your spirit indwells us. Father, there's no excuse, there ain't no reason we shouldn't have church tonight. God, you can do a work in our hearts and lives if we've come ready and if we're willing to yield ourselves unto you. Lord, I pray that you'd give me power and unction as I preach. Lord, that you might increase and I might decrease and that Christ might gain the preeminence in everything that takes place tonight. Lord, you know our needs. Now meet them through your grace. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if the Lord will give us liberty to, and, and you know, when we start on these series that are maybe a little lengthier, I don't know what God's going to do. I, I, you know, I always do my best just try to mind the leading the Spirit of God from week to week. And so uh, this may be the last one we preach from this series. It may be kind of a one-sermon series. Amen. I heard one preacher say, I've been invited a lot of places once in a row. Amen. And uh, so it may be kind of one of those. But if the Lord will give us liberty to, we, we may just go through all 12 of these. I believe there's something we can learn and gain from the blessings that Jacob bestowed upon each of his 12 sons. Now, I want you to notice again what it says in verse number 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Some commentators have called this the judgment seat of Jacob. Many long years have passed. These are not boys. These are grown men with children and grandchildren of their own. And now the aged patriarch Jacob, a man who has lived a colorful, a storied life, this is a man that has wrestled with God. This is a man that's had his name changed. Amen? Uh, isn't it good to meet somebody who's had their name changed? You know what I mean. I mean somebody that's had a head-on collision with Calvary and come out a different person. And uh, Jacob is such a man. He is a man of wealth. He is a man of power. He is a man of prominence. He is a man of reputation. But now as he comes to the end of his life, he's dying just like every one of us do. And he gathers his sons around and that he may bestow upon them a blessing. Now, there's a lot that I wish I knew about the blessings of the Old Testament patriarchs that I don't know. But I will tell you what I do know, that in the few instances at this period of time in human history that these patriarchs would gather their sons and offer a blessing unto them, uh, these blessings were not just words of well-wishing. They were not just words of encouragement. It was not merely the divvying up or divvying out of the will. But there was a prophetic touch upon the things that they said. 
Uh, God, through the anointing or through the uh, inspiration, let's say it that way, I believe that's a better biblical term, through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, allowed them to speak things that were true and would be true concerning the lives of their children. Now, I won't say this was a common experience uh, for everybody that died in this time, but we have a couple of instances in Scripture when such was the case. And this is what Jacob is doing. The statements he is about to make concerning his sons are most definitely personal statements about them. Nobody knows you like your parents know you. Amen? And many long years, Jacob had watched his sons. He had seen their weaknesses and their strengths. But as you study this passage, there's no question that some of the things that Jacob mentions move beyond just the tendencies of his children and look forward into a future prophetic time in which God would accomplish something in the nation of Israel. Let me describe it to you this way, that as you read these 12 different blessings that concern what will befall these men in the latter days, in the last days, you can understand these both dispensationally and dispositionally. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, as you look at these 12 sons and the blessings upon them, we find that they provide for us a road map that the nation of Israel would take from that moment in time all the way down to the millennial kingdom. Uh, God is conveying through the words of Jacob sort of a pathway that this nation is going to walk through these 12 sons. And we'll say a word about some of those things as we preach through this. But then we can also understand it dispositionally. It was according to the dispositions of the sons. Some of these prophecies deal with their personal history. Some of them don't deal with any history at all. I'm not going to preach on it, but you get down to looking at like uh, Zebulun and Issachar uh, and even Judah. Uh, Some of the things that Jacob says has nothing to do really with them, uh, but it has to do with a prophecy concerning the tribe of Zebulun or the tribe of Issachar or the tribe of Judah. And so we understand that each of these has three sort of applications. We might say that there is a prophetic application to each of these, and we'll touch on that. We might say there is a personal application to each of these. In other words, Jacob was saying something about his sons. But then we know that all Scripture is given to be profitable. Amen? All Scripture is given by our inspiration of God and is profitable. So there is a practical application of each of these things. And so as the Lord helps us to, we want to look at each of these over the next few weeks. The first one that Jacob begins with is his firstborn son, Reuben. Uh, now, there is a lot in the Word of God about Reuben. Some of the sons of Jacob, there's not much said about. But Reuben is a man that there is much said about. Reuben was uh, the one that tried to convince them not to sell Jacob into slavery and not to kill Jacob. Reuben was one that had offered up his own children to stay instead of Benjamin when they were in front of Joseph unawares in the book of Genesis. Reuben was the one that went and gathered mandrakes and brought them to his mother Leah. So there is a lot in Scripture concerning Reuben. But as we come down to this portion of Reuben's life, there is one phrase that I think sums it up. And can I give it to you? Let me say that in this passage, we hear a word about squandered opportunities. You know, every one of us, we have opportunities. Amen? I don't care who you are, as you live and breathe in front of me tonight, we all have opportunities to do something for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here without Christ, you have an opportunity to accept Christ. If you're here and you know Christ, you have an opportunity to serve Christ. With the waking moments that we have, the time that is drifting away as uh, grains of sand fall through the hourglass with each passing one is an opportunity to make something worthwhile out of the time that God has given us. 
when you consider the history of the nation of Israel, could we not help but think that the history of the nation of Israel is a history of squandered opportunities? When you consider all that God gave them, when you consider that God literally took him from his eternal bosom, God called Abraham out of Syrian and pagan darkness and taught him how to walk by faith. And from them, a family was raised up that went into bondage in Egypt. But then God brought that family out by the high and mighty hand of Moses, his prophet, and then led them, bore them upon his breast through the wilderness, fed them, furnished a table for them where no table could have been furnished otherwise, gave them manna from heaven, gave them quail from heaven, Gave them water out of the rock. God did so much for the nation of Israel. And yet their history is a lot like your history and my history. It seemed like the more God did for them, the less they trusted God. Every time that you turn around, man, you, uh, they, they spend all those years talking about getting into the promised land. And what happens when they get in the promised land? They don't even occupy it like God wants them to occupy it. And when you come to the end of the book of Joshua, that great battle book, uh, you came to the book of Judges, which is that great burdening book. And you see how that time after time they rebelled against the hand of a loving and benevolent God. Time after time He sold them into bondage. Time after time they cried for deliverance. Time after time God sent them a judge and time after time they went once again back into rebellion and backsliddenness they were a nation of squandered opportunity and god points to this in the prophecy concerning reuben but i want us tonight to consider what it means for our life Uh, jacob says a few things and i like i said i don't really know how to preach this so i'm just going to do it how i know how and then we'll go fellowship i want you to notice the first thing that Jacob points to. You can imagine with me, if you will, the scene that is set before him. Uh, I'm sure they expect that all of Jacob's words will be kind words, but they are not all kind words. There is a compassion within his words, because let me say this, to rebuke sin is an act of love. And so where he exposes and rebukes their sin, it is an act of love, but they are certainly not kind words. And you can imagine as Reuben steps forward, many long years have passed since he has committed the iniquity that Jacob is about to point out. No doubt that was far from his mind because that's how human nature is, you know. Uh, let, let two or three days pass since we've done something wrong and we think we've got away with it. And no doubt as he stepped up to the bedside, he is the firstborn. To him belongs so much. No doubt he stood with his shoulders thrust back, with his head held high, expecting to hear kind words from his dying father. And Jacob begins by denoting Reuben's unique position. Notice what it says in verse number 3. He says, Reuben. He calls him by his name. The name Reuben means behold, a son. No doubt when Jacob looked upon that little boy, his firstborn, his heart swelled with the prospect of an heir finally. And he says, Reuben, thou art my firstborn. Now you can sort of imagine Reuben says, well, this sounds good. He goes on to say, Reuben, you're my might. Reuben says, well, that sounds even better. He goes a step further and he says, and the beginning of my strength. This was a pretty common phrase that was used uh, concerning the firstborn. In as much as the the ability to bear children would be synonymous at this time with a man's strength and his domineerance and his, his prowess. And so Jacob says, son, when I looked at you, I saw my firstborn. I saw the one that occupied a special place in my heart. When I looked at you, I saw my might and I saw the beginning of my strength. I saw the expression of all that I had lived for. He says, when I looked at you, Reuben, I saw the excellency of dignity. 
I looked, no doubt he did like many fathers do when they have that first child. You know what they do? They look that child over and they count all their fingers. They count all their toes. They look them over to make sure everything's all right. Everything's healthy. When he looks at Reuben, he sees the picture of dignity and health. He sees excellency. And he says, you, Reuben, were the excellency of my power. He looks at him and he says, you know, Reuben, you had a special place in my heart and in my home. Can I say that that's true of you and me? Now, you say, preacher, what makes us so special? Well, nothing in and of ourselves. But the very fact that the God of heaven would look upon a poor lost sinner like you or I and would in grace reach down and lift us out of the miry clay of our iniquity and would pull us up and set our feet upon a solid rock and establish our goings. The Bible says this about our condition. Uh, The Bible says that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Listen, you and I stand in a unique position tonight. There's nothing, if there's anything more that God could give us to make us more righteous and more like Him, God would give it to us. But He's given us the fullness of blessing in His Son. He's given us the foundation of authority in His Word. Uh, He's given us the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the indwelling Holy Spirit. I'm saying that God has given us everything we need to live for Him if we'll just abide in Him. We have a unique position. He points to a few things. He points to the property that Reuben had owed to him. When he says he's his firstborn, no doubt in Reuben's mind, he thought, oh, I'm going to get the birthright. When they would divvy up the the property, when they would divvy up the legacy, so to speak, of of the, the father, the way that it worked is that everyone would get an equal share except for the firstborn. The firstborn would get a double portion of whatever it was. And so no doubt Reuben thought to himself, Oh, God has blessed me. Oh, Jacob has considered me. Jacob has remembered me. I am the firstborn and now I will be prosperous. You know, you and I, and I don't believe that Bible Christianity is about prosperity. Somebody say amen to that. Too many poor people that love God to believe it's about prosperity. But I do believe this. We have a God that meets our needs. And we have a God that meets our needs. David said it this way. He said, I've been a young man. He said, and I've been an old man. He said, I, I, I once was young and now I'm old. Yet have I never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. We have a God that cares for the sparrow that flies in the sky, that keeps count of the hairs on your head, and a a God that feeds us, that clothes us, that meets our needs. That's the God that we have. Oh, He's blessed us. And listen, He don't just treat us like a servant. He treats us like a son. I find it interesting. It's in my message, but I just can't help myself. The prodigal son, you know why he left? Because he was a son that was being treated like a servant. He didn't like that. The book of Galatians says that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant. Isn't that right? The prodigal son, when he was home, he left because he was a servant and wasn't getting treated like a son. But you know what? After he spent a little time in the hog pit and he came to himself and God humbled him, he came back to be a servant. You know what? His father treated him like a son. Let me tell you something. God has been so good to us. And maybe in as much as we'll humble ourselves, he'll exalt us. And meet our needs. God's been so good to us. We see the property that Reuben no doubt expected. The preeminence no doubt that Reuben expected. Look again at the way he describes it. He says, my might and beginning of my strength. In other words, Reuben was the beginning. His name would be listed in the genealogies. He would be pointed to as the preeminent one 
in the family. Now, I understand that the Bible, and not just the Bible, but the world as it is, the human experience, the divine experience, I mean, just everything in every portion of every part of existence is structured in such a way that Christ might have the preeminence. Amen? But let me say that though Christ has the preeminence, and He should have the preeminence, that you and I, as, as Christians, there's coming a day where we will enjoy prominence. I'm not going to get too much into it. We could, and we could have a good time preaching on it, and I'm not scared to, but there's coming a day when there's going to be a kingdom. And those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll not be downtrodden anymore. And there's a prominence, and there's a place in that kingdom uh, for those that have served faithfully the Lord. And then I think probably part of this position that was to go to Reuben was the priesthood. You know, in, in the patriarchal days, you say, what do you mean by that, preacher? In the days when God was dealing with a family and not dealing with a nation. That's what it means. When you hear someone talk about the patriarchal age, that means in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That means in the days when God was dealing with a family as opposed to dealing with a nation. Now, that family would become the nation of Israel, but he was dealing with a family. In those days, before the Old Testament law was given, there was still a priesthood. There were still sacrifices given. But the priest of a family would always be the oldest male in that family. That's the reason that Job, for instance, gave sacrifices for his sons. It's not that they couldn't have come to God on their own behalf, but Job does it because he is the priest of that family. And no doubt before the Levitical priesthood has been instituted, Reuben thinks to himself as the firstborn, as the oldest son, no doubt the priesthood will be given to my tribe. We could be talking about the Reubenitic priesthood instead of the Levitical priesthood. Man, you think about what God's done for you and I as believers. You understand the the New Testament gives us very clearly the doctrine of the priesthood, the individual priesthood of the believer. Man, we have boldness and access, Paul said. We have boldness and access. When God talks about the throne room of grace, you know what He says to you and me? He says, come boldly. Come boldly. I don't Listen, I don't have to go to somebody downtown and drop a few coins in a plate and ask them to go to God for me. I don't have to go in a little phone booth and, and confess my sins and ask them to go and ask God's forgiveness for my sins. No, the Bible says this. Now, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have no need that any man does that for us. We can go to God and pray. We can enter boldly into the throne room of grace. That is the high and holy privilege of everyone that knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what a blessing God has put in our lives. There's no excuse we shouldn't be living for God. There's no reason a single one of us that knows Christ is our Savior shouldn't be living for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us all these things, and He's given up His his own Son. Will He not give us all things? There's not a single place in your life in which God would not empower and enable you to live for Him if we'd just take it about to live for Him. I'd say Reuben had a unique position, but I'd say you and I, we've got a pretty unique position too. And we could be living for Him. He speaks of Reuben's unique position, but then the conversation turns. Up to this point, no doubt Reuben felt pretty good. You know, things are going well. I'm going to get the property. I'm going to get the preeminence amongst the tribes. I'm going to get the priesthood. All of these things are mine because I am the firstborn. But then a word enters the conversation. Verse 4, unstable, Reuben. 
unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. We see not only Reuben's unique position, but we see Reuben's unstable personality. Now, there is a lot that we could say, and we will say a word about Reuben's personal history here in a moment. But can I just say a word about the metaphor that Jacob uses? He could have said a lot of things, but he says unstable as water. And there's three things that came to my mind when I thought about that. You know, water has certain properties, has certain qualities, has certain things it can do and certain things it can't do. And when you think about the tendency of water, I think in this context, you get a pretty good understanding about the carnal man, the flesh, the natural man. You know that every uh, person that's born in this world is born a sinner, right? We are born a natural man. We are born at enmity with God. We are not born in tune with God. We are born at ought with God. And as such, the natural man, Paul said, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are spiritually received and spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot receive those things. So the natural man behaves in such a way. But if you've been saved, you've got the new man within you as well. And that new man behaves in such and such a way. I believe if we consider water, three things about it, we might get a pretty good understanding about the natural man. Let me give you three things. I would say this, that water has a tendency to disperse. And so does the natural man. You say, what do you mean? Water always seeks the lowest level. The lowest level. They've got flooding all over right now in parts of the country. And thank the Lord that we're not experiencing it here. But the reason is because all this water that has fallen, it hasn't turned around and headed back up. It's continued to seek for lower ground. Whenever water is poured out, it never just naturally goes up. It always goes down. Let me say that the natural man left unto himself, he never excels. He never goes up. He never gets right. He always goes down. He always heads towards the bottom. Let me point you again to the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal son, that's a good picture of a Christian that's made up his mind that he's going to live for self instead of living for the Savior. And you know what happened? He said about, he said, I'm really going to take the world by storm. And he wound up in the middle of a hog pit. That's the natural man. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. It's not necessarily even that carnal man seeks to end up in that condition. It's just there's a way that seemeth right unto a man. When I was a youth pastor, you know, we'd deal with teenagers. And teenagers, they're, they're not... <laughs> I was, that was, I'm going to say it anyway. Teenagers are not real smart. I mean, there is a smartness about them. Amen? I don't expect the teenagers to amen that. I understand. But what I mean is this, that there, there is not the wisdom and experience that age lends to a person. But for all the lack of wisdom, let me say, they're doubled up on passion and purpose. And you find a teenager who's made their mind up about something, uh, their mind is made up. And I would counsel with so many young people, and they'd be talking about some boyfriend they got or some girlfriend that they got or uh, some decision they'd made. You know, they'd decide they was going to drop out of school and, you know, join the circus or something. And, and you'd counsel with them, and they'd say this. They'd say, well, Toby, I just know it's the right thing to do. I know that it's what I want. I know that it's right. Oftentimes I'd share with them this verse where there was another group of people that had a way that seemeth right. It seemed right. You say, if my way always seems right, how do I know what is the right way? Well, that's what the Word of God is for. It shows us the right and the true way because nobody ever takes a path knowing it's the wrong way. It always seemeth to be 
the right way. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends are over the ways of death. The carnal man does not follow that path because he knows that it will lead to destruction. He follows that path because it seems like it's going to lead him to happiness. But the natural tendency of man is always to seek the lowest level. The lowest level. Let me say that not only is there a tendency to disperse, but let me say that there is a tendency to displace in water. And I thought about this. Can I share it with you? Water is never a fit foundation but it can be a terrifying force. You don't build anything on it, but you get enough of it going in the same direction and it can tear down mountains. You know, that's how the natural man is. He's fickle and he's fleeting. And there's nothing, you can't build on it. I've known lots of people, you know, you see these Hollywood stars and oftentimes they'll reach the pinnacle of their profession and they'll take their own life. You say, why would a man do such a thing? Well, see, they've been climbing and they've been chasing a carrot and they finally got a hold of it and it left them empty and hollow inside. And for all those years, the prospect of achieving and attaining was enough to keep them going. But once they achieved and once they attained, they found out there was nothing to it and they couldn't cope with it. They couldn't handle it. You know, that's how the natural man is. As he pursues something, as he sees, you can't build anything on it. Uh, everything that he builds is on sinking sand. But, left unto himself, he can be a mighty force for destruction. In other words, if you don't keep your natural man in check, you'll never be able to depend on him and gain happiness. I'm talking about saved people now. I'm talking about if you depend on the flesh, it'll never make you happy, but it sure can make a mess of your life. Never a fit foundation, but it can be a terrifying force. And then I thought about water's tendency to dissipate. There's an Old Testament scripture that speaks to this truth. When the woman of Tekoa uh, is speaking to David concerning his son Absalom, and she says this, that water, once it's spilt on the ground, can't be gathered up again. Now, I understand she's talking about David's relationship with Absalom, but let me say that that quality concerning water is a pretty good commentary on the natural man. In other words, once the flesh has been let go... It's been let go. Whatever destruction it does, it cannot be reversed, and the clock can't be rolled back. I'm not saying there's not forgiveness in Christ. But let me just say this, that once we've committed an action, the action's committed. And we may get forgiveness, but we can't just turn around and wipe it away and cause it to never have happened. I I feel like we spend so much time trying to give hope to people that have made wrecks of their life. And there's a place for that, my friend. Listen, if you're here and your life is in pieces, Christ can make the difference. But I feel like in doing so, in spending so much time talking about how that God can take the broken pieces and put them back together, and He can do that, that oftentimes we cheat a younger generation whose life is not yet in pieces and cause them to think that there's no consequences to the way that they live. Tell you something, there's stuff that you do that can't be undone. There's mistakes that you make that you can't unmake. And there's things that you lose that you can't get back. And the natural man left unto himself, he will make a destruction of your life. Jacob says, Reuben, you have all these things, so much promise and so much potential, but you're unstable as water. He speaks of Reuben's unstable personality, but he points to Reuben's unscrupulous passions. And he describes some things that Reuben has done. He gives one episode in particular to convey it. He says this at the end of 
verse number 4. He says this, Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it, he went up to my couch. No doubt this statement struck terror in Reuben's heart. I don't know how much that Reuben knew that Jacob knew. But listen how this is described in Genesis 35, verse 22. It says, And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land. We know that Israel is another name for Jacob. I told you at the beginning he's a man with a changed name. So sometimes he's called Israel, sometimes he's called Jacob. But it says, And it came to pass when Jacob dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Now this is the maid of Rachel. And Israel heard it. Now it does not say that Israel even so much as rebuked him at that moment. But no doubt it pierced to the very heart and soul of this father when he considered the betrayal that Reuben had committed. Well, guess what? Judgment day has come, Reuben. Many long years this has lay quiet. But now at Jacob's bedside, at Jacob's judgment seat, sins that have been long covered will be exposed and brought into the light. And he gives this as an example and as the reason that Reuben will endure his punishment. Notice first off the iniquity with the lady that he speaks of. He says, Reuben, you have committed iniquity with Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah. Let me say that uh, the flesh left unto itself will do abhorrent things. Now, this was a form of incest, although there was no blood relation between Reuben and Bilhah, but still it was contrary and offensive to law of a holy God. And it was the type of thing that when Paul talks about it in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says that this type of iniquity is not even named amongst the Gentiles. When he rebukes that Corinthian church because a man was performing the same sin with his stepmother, he says this kind of thing isn't even spoken about. Let me tell you something. Before you say, I would never, you better check yourself because it's within all of us to do things that we never dream of. You see, the thing that Jacob is trying to convey, the thing I believe that God is trying to convey to us tonight is just how wicked and rotten our natural man is. You say, I never would. Oh, but your natural man would. Your carnal man would. And left unto himself, you'd be shocked what he's capable of. You'd be shocked what he's capable of. He points to the iniquity with the lady, but I think there's a few other things we could point to just in passing. I would say the insurrection against the Levites in chapter number 16 of the book of Numbers. At this point, it is not uh, Reuben as a person, but it's Reuben as a tribe. And a disaffected man by the name of Korah stands up because he has been barred from the Levitical priesthood and he commits insurrection against the tribe of Levi and against the man of God, Moses. And of all the people in the nation of Israel, it was the Reubenites that stood up and said, Yes, Korah, we'll go with you. We'll stand against God's natural order and God's spiritual structure for the priesthood. Let me say this, that the natural man, not only will he do things that are abhorrent, but he'll do things that are offensive to God and are contrary to God's way and God's structure. Uh, we talked a little bit about it this morning. Listen, if God says go right, the natural man says go left. That's within us. I don't know about you. Now, let me preach about me for a minute. I've been awful hard on you tonight, so let me preach about me, okay? 
I don't know about you, but I know that there's something within my soul and spirit. When I find out the will of God, there's something that immediately pulls back. There's something that immediately goes to say, but... There's something that immediately goes to say, wait, Lord, why is that? Wouldn't you think after all God has done in my life that it'd be oh so easy to yield? But the natural man makes sure it's never easy to yield. The the spirit and the flesh, they are contrary one to the other. They lust one against each other, the Word of God says. In other words, there's a constant battle and a constant struggle between the old man and the new man. And really, in as much as it's a struggle, it's not really against the old man and the new man. It's against the old man and God. And the new man is yielded to God. And the natural man always seeks to live in rebellion to a holy God. If you allow him to run your life, he'll run you into rebellion with a holy God. I would say that these passions are denoted by the iniquity with the lady, by the... Uh, in, uh, by the, uh, the uh, insurrection against the Levites. But I think probably the impatience in the land is a good example too. Numbers chapter, I believe it's 32, gives us this truth. And we won't turn there. But did you know that whenever they were divvying out the land, uh, when they had come into the, the land of Canaan, that Reuben stood up before anybody stood up and said, we want this portion of land right here. They chose the smallest and southernmost portion on the east side of Jordan. They lacked any ambition to move forward. They wanted only to settle as soon as possible and to live a life of ease, raising their cattle. Let me say this, that the natural man, not only will he do things that are abhorrent, not only will the natural man do things that are offensive against a holy God, let me say that the natural man tends towards apathy concerning the things that God has for us. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. If you don't get your natural man in check, you'll never appreciate and you'll never enjoy the life that Christ has for you to live. The natural man will always treat the things of God with indifference. And he will never enjoy and he'll never appreciate and he'll never see the greater and more vast and more splendid life that God has for us. You know how it's described in the New Testament? Casting your pearls before swine. The swine can't appreciate that they're pearls. They look just like rocks to him. And when cast before him, he treats him with the same contempt as if you were to throw rocks at him. And that's how the natural man views the dealings of God. You know why it is that when God convicts us, there's that part of us that wants to say, well, what does God have a say in my life? That's the natural man. We ought to be thanking God for His grace that He'd convict us. But instead, so often, we're jerking the shoulder back. We're huffing and puffing at God. Why? Because the natural man is getting his way and not the new man. I think it's a pretty good example in Reuben's history. But I want to close with this thought. I won't say a lot about it. But we see in this passage Reuben's unique position. If anybody should have excelled, Reuben should have excelled. God gave him everything he needed that he might be the prominent, preeminent tribe in the nation of Israel. We see Reuben's unstable personality. He never achieved these things. Why? Because he couldn't get the natural man in check. We see in this passage his unscrupulous passions as the natural man governed and ran his life. But I want you to notice the unpleasant punishment that became Reuben's. It's in a simple phrase that Jacob uses. He says, Reuben, unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Now, what did Jacob mean by that? Well, he meant a lot of things by it. We could look at the entire history of Reuben 
and see a history of squandered opportunities. But can I give you three areas that Reuben should have increased and excelled that he never did increase and excel? I would note to you that Reuben never excelled in population as a tribe. There were two censuses that were taken. I guess that's how you'd say it. Censuses? Censuses? Censi, I guess. And uh, <laughs> there, were, there were two censuses that were taken. In the first one, Reuben was numbered at 46,500 members of their tribe. That was in Numbers chapter number 1. When you get down to Numbers chapter number 26, another census is taken, and they are counted at 43,730 members. Now you say, why is that significant, preacher? Well, for two reasons. One, because as the excellency of dignity, as the excellency of power, as the might and the beginning of Jacob's strength, wouldn't you think that the oldest that has had the most time to build a family and work on a family, if anybody would stand at the head of the pack, if anybody would have excelled and increased, it would have been Reuben. But when most other tribes were registering an increase, Reuben was registering a decrease. Can I give you a very simple truth? If you continue to live in the flesh, your spiritual man will diminish and diminish and grow weaker and weaker. I believe that you can't lose your salvation. And even if I didn't believe it, it doesn't matter because the Word of God teaches that you can't lose your salvation. He's lost none of them. He's not going to lose any of them. Amen? But while I don't believe you can ever lose your salvation, I do believe you can lose your spiritual strength. I believe you can lose your joy. I believe you can, you can lose uh, the glory of God in your life and the power of God on your life. And if ever there was a picture, it's of Reuben. A man that should have excelled and should have grown only stronger continued to grow weaker in population. When we speak of weakness, let me say this, that uh, that took a toll because he never excelled in prominence. There was no judge, there was no king, and there was no prophet to ever come out of the tribe of Reuben. And wouldn't you think, the firstborn, the oldest son, that it would be a tribe that would be ripe with kings and prophets and judges, and rulers, and leaders. But the only time that anybody of prominence is ever mentioned out of the tribe of Reuben, it's always in a negative connotation. You know why? Paul said it this way. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. You live in the flesh, there'll be never be anything good to be said about it. Your flesh, listen now, cannot accomplish anything for the glory of God. You've got to walk in the strength of the new man to do something for God. You've got to walk in the power of a new life and of a risen Savior to do anything for the glory of God. The natural man will always, no matter how feeble, how petty achievement, he'll always say, and look at what I've done. But the new man, he yields all glory to God. And I think because of this, because they never excelled in population, they never excelled in prominence, we find they never excelled in power. I'm not going to say a lot about it because I've already preached it. But do you know that in the book of First Chronicles, chapter 5, when God begins to give the story of the carrying away into captivity of the northern ten tribes, that lo and behold, the very first tribe carried away was the tribe of Reuben. 
when that great Assyrian emperor Tiglath-Pileser came in and took by storm those northern ten tribes, it was Reuben that fell first. It was Reuben that diminished first. You know why? Because there was no strength. There was no strength. Can I give you just a very simple truth and then close? We too have an enemy. We too have a, a great, not in the sense of morality, but in the sense of terror. A mighty, not in the sense of spiritual strength, but in the sense of rebellion against God. Leader or emperor that would seek to gain dominion in our lives. Peter called him a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. And guess what, my friend? He'll walk by your way soon enough. He'll walk by your way soon enough. Say, preacher, how do I get ready in that day? Paul said, let us therefore put on the armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Uh, It's a whole other message. I won't preach it. But there was a day when Jacob stole the birthright from his brother Esau. And you know why Esau was willing to sell that birthright? Esau was weak. He was weary because he had been out in the field. We know that in the Bible, the field is a picture of the world. After spending all that time in the natural man, Esau walks in and he's not prepared for the choice that's laid before him. Let me tell you something. Monday, tomorrow morning, you're going to have some choices to make. You want to walk in the power of the new man? You better get started tonight and not wait till the moment of decision. Because you wait till then, you live in the flesh from now till then, in that moment of decision, you'll be the first one that the lion carries away prey. You see, the natural man affords us nothing. But the new man, inasmuch as he's yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ and walks in the power of his risen strength, oh, the new man, through him we can triumph. And through him we can see God glorified. We don't have to face this week and come again on a Sunday next week and look back over a week of squandered opportunities. We can look back over a week in which God gained victory and gained glory. A week in which ground was gained. and A week in which uh, God got more of us than He had the week before. If we'll just yield to Him tonight and look to Him for the strength that we need and not lean upon the failing arm of the flesh.